we were excited to see Joey come up and do that. Now, before, I, before he does so, I want to also tell you that he has three of his children here today, and he, is, he and his wife have been very fruitful and have five, although here in our church that would be behind. So you would have to step up the pace a little bit, brother, in order to be uh, catch up to some of these guys. So, but we just we thank you for coming. We thank uh, Justin and Tranway for helping us out with that. Come and preach the word, brother. Good morning. Good morning. How you guys doing? Good. Good. In regards to uh, five kids not being enough, I'm, I'm happy to surround myself around those that are better than me, and uh, so I think, we're, I think we're good there. Yeah, <laughs> let's, uh, let's pray real quick, and then we'll dive into God's Word. Father, we thank you so much for how you have shown your love uh, toward us, your love to us through your Son. I even think of all the songs that were sung already that we got to, uh, the truth that we got to remind one another of, of our Savior Christ. And we ask that even, uh, even now, as we focus our attention on your word, as we focus our attention on him, that we would grow in our uh, love and understanding of him, and ultimately we would grow in our uh, affections for him in obedience. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, it is neat to, uh, to hear all those songs sung together. We actually had, if I remember correctly, Speak, O Lord, planned uh, to be done at Grace Jacks as well. So, well done, man. You've been... Uh, Looking at our website, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, but it's beautiful when you think through all the songs that we just got to sing together. They were all focused on who? On Christ, right? And not only focused on Christ in the sense of just saying the name over and over as some churches do, but there was so much truth and so much theology undergirding the realities of who Christ is. And as Christians, as those who would gather together in a Christian church, uh, we know that and understand that we have the source of all truth of who Jesus Christ is, and that is the Word of God. But I'm sure as many of you know, whether from your own interactions or study that you've done, there are many out there, many cults out there that have the wrong view of who Jesus Christ is. I want to begin our time actually telling you guys a little bit of what other religions say, other cults say about Jesus Christ. The Jehovah's Witnesses, they say that Jesus was not God, but a God. He was the first and direct creation of Jehovah God. Christian science says that Jesus Christ is not God, but, but is the Son of God. The spiritual Christ was infallible. Jesus, as material manhood, was not Christ. The incarnation and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ did not occur. Mormons say that Jesus was one of many gods, and before his incarnation was the spirit brother of Lucifer. The Theosophical Society, which is Gnosticism, says Jesus Christ is not unique. Jesus is a reincarnate being separate from Christ, and actually all men, all mankind, will one day become Christ's. The Baha'i Faith says Jesus Christ was, not, was one of nine manifestations of the Messiah. He was not virgin-born. He was not God incarnate and did not rise bodily from the grave. Unitarian Universalism, Christ is not divine. Jesus was, was possibly a great moral teacher. Actually, no bodily resurrection. Scientology says Christ 
is a legend. This is a, an interesting one. Christ is a legend that pre-existed earth life on other planets and was implanted into humans on earth. Jesus was just a shade above clear and was no greater than Buddha or Moses. The Unification Church, the crucifixion of Jesus was an alternative plan and it only saved mankind halfway. New Age cult, Jesus was an enlightened teacher. Islam, Jesus was not the Son of God. He was revered as a spiritual guide, and that's it. If you were listening to any of the songs that we sang this morning, if you hold the Bible as God's word, you know that all of those are wrong. You know that if God, if Jesus was not God, if Jesus were not in fact unique, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, if he was not the one and only true Messiah, if Jesus only saved mankind halfway, if he was only an enlightened teacher or spiritual guide, then we as Christians, those who are meeting together in this room, would be much to be pitied. The gathering together that of why we're even coming together this morning would be a complete waste of time. There'd be no purpose in us being here right now. The songs that we just sang would be folktale. They might as well be nursery rhymes. Our prayers would be senseless thoughts. Our acts of kindness would be temporal at best. I started off with 11 different descriptions of Jesus and his mission from, from cults. If any of those were accurate, Christians would be and should be labeled fools. Not only that. Not only would Christians be labeled as fools, but we would have much to worry about. See, because all of mankind would still be guilty in their sin, and there would be no remedy. All of mankind would still, would still be under a holy God who is just to punish us. Because this holy God has a standard of obedience, and the problem is not a single soul has met that standard. The truth of who Jesus is and what he came to do It's not only important. Don't think that it is merely important, but it is the only thing, the very thing that we exist for as individual Christians. It's the only thing that we exist for as a church. It's the only reason why a church would be planted here in Gainesville. See, all of our doctrine, our practice, our theology, our programs, our philosophy, our leadership positions, every aspect of what a church does when it gets together, hinges on the reality of who Jesus Christ is and what his mission truly was came to there's no theology without Christ there's no marriage counseling without Christ there's no children's ministry or youth ministry or college ministry without Christ there's no music ministry without Christ there's not a single elder or deacon that holds any authority or dignity without Christ The church actually ceases to exist for any reason if you remove the message of Jesus Christ from its center. It would just be a foolish, just as foolish as playing basketball without a ball or walking up to a car that you know that there's no engine inside of it and hoping to start that car. It would be a a beautiful display case with an ornate pedestal in the middle of it and, and installing perfect lighting around this pedestal and then having nothing to present inside of it. That would be the church without Christ. And we might hear of those other religions, 
and those extremes and those extremes about what they do with Jesus. And we might think, thank you, Lord, that we're not like them. Thank you that we don't have that wrong thinking about Jesus. And we should be very grateful. But sometimes we're tempted then to move on from the message of Christ, to move on from the simplicity of the gospel, and move on to mere ministry. We move on to practical things of the Christian walk, on to the so-called deeper truths of the faith. You could say that we move away from the man and we move on to the ministry. We trade the message of Christ for the ministry of the church. And if we do that, when we do that, we couldn't be more mistaken. The Apostle Paul knew that this would be the tendency of believers. Paul knew that there would be a danger of moving away from, away from Christ toward the trusses of the sanctuary and, and, and spending more time focusing on the church itself than the truth of the Savior. In the passage we're going to look at, Paul wants the church purpose and what drives it to function well, to operate the way that God has seen fit for it to operate. Put the state of the church is the message of Christ. If you're not already there, turn in your Bibles, please, to First Timothy chapter three. And First Timothy, First uh, Timothy is one of the uh, so-called pastoral epistles. Uh, it's written by the Apostle Paul, and in these uh, epistles, these pastoral epistles, Paul is instructing his ministry cohorts, Timothy and Titus, on various ministry matters. These matters range from dealing with false teachers the distinct roles of men and women in the church, formal church offices, the qualifications necessary for those holding their positions, attention to self-disciplines and personal holiness, true discipleship, wise financial stewardship. See, Paul covers a wide range of important matters regarding the believer and the church. And so actually in First Timothy, by the time you get to chapter 3, covered much ground in specific instruction to Timothy and to the church. And yet at the end of chapter 3, Paul does something a little bit different here. Paul does this this almost mid-letter break in the flow of instruction that he's talking about with a quick explanation of what he's doing in this letter. Look with me at chapter at verse 14 of chapter 3. It says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that, and here's the purpose, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. So immediately on the the coattails of giving the qualifications of, of of a man that would be an elder or a deacon, Paul decides that this would be a perfect time for him to explain why it is that he's writing everything that he's writing. That because he's not physically able to be there with the church, he wanted to remind them, to tell them how the church was to function when they gathered together. How, when the church gathered together, even with him not there, uh, what church was supposed to look like. It's, It's similar to when my wife and I go on a date. Someone comes and we give this poor soul that's going to spend all that time with our children instructions, I'm I'm kidding, some instructions on how to interact with our children, how our home works, and we also leave some instructions with our children, reminding them of the rules of the house when we're gone. And that's what Paul is doing here. Except as he explains, this isn't his home. 
This isn't merely some random person's home. This isn't even some important leader or human authority's home. He says that this is the household of God. It's the church of the living God. And what does he say is so important about being the house of the living God? Well, we read Paul's final description of this house. He goes on to describe the purpose of, this, of the church's very existence. The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. It's the very structure on which the truth stands. And so the question for us this morning, when we say on which the truth stands, what is the truth that the church is to be upholding? What truth is so grand that it needs to be supported by such great pillars and fortified by a buttress, a mighty buttress? It's the message of the one and only Jesus Christ and His mission. And so that's what Paul goes on to unpack in verse 16, and that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at. So look with with verse 16. Great indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. I want to give you a fair warning here. You're going to hear those uh, six lines of this hymn over and over and over this morning. And I'm hoping by the end of this morning they'll be drilled into your mind so when you think about Christ, you will have this description in your mind. Uh, Paul is actually exclaiming a a pinnacle truth here about Jesus Christ. And he actually does this uh, with six lines. This this verse, six lines from an early church. So really what what Paul is doing here is he's placing a beautiful diamond in this display case and placing it onto the pedestal. And what he's going to do is walk us around this pedestal and show us different facets and aspects of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so as we look, we're going to take them one line at a time, and we're going to glean six undeniably great truths about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Six undeniably great truths about the person and work of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice something as we walk into this, as we begin looking at this verse here, Paul is not trying to convince anyone of the truthfulness of Christ. He's not trying to convince anyone of the truthfulness of this mystery. In his mind, it's a given. So much so that he qualifies the object of this hymn with a very precise statement, great indeed we confess. A more concise translation, great. Unbelievably great is the mystery of godliness. See, concerning the person of Jesus Christ, Paul is saying, you know what, we're going to move on from just believable, but we're going to move on to breathtaking. It's not undeniably true is the mystery of godliness, although it is, but undeniably great. To the believer, the truth of Jesus Christ, this is not merely an adequate truth. It's not merely something that we say, well, when we're talking to others about him, well, did you know that the reality is there was this person called Jesus? No, this is an amazing truth to us. It's, it's what every, everything else that we do hinges on this fact, on this. 
Now, I keep referring to this great mystery of godliness as Jesus Christ, but look at your Bibles. 16. He doesn't say Jesus anywhere here. All, all that it starts with is, is this uh, masculine was manifested. His name's never to be found here. Instead, there is this term even before that, the mystery of godliness. So how do we know that this mystery of godliness is not talking about something different? How do we know it's not talking about the sanctification process? How do we know it's not talking about, when he, talk, when he says mystery, the reality of the gospel now being available to both Greek and Jew? How do we know he's not talking about God the Father? I'll give you a question here. And Paul is being very intentional with his language. Allow me to get a little nerdy talking about the Greek here just for a second. Uh, the noun mystery is actually neuter gender if you were looking at a Greek Bible in front of you. However, the hymn itself begins with a masculine relative pronoun. Now normally, you would expect these two genders to match. But Paul wants to make it clear that this mystery is actually talking about a person. And using a masculine pronoun would be one of the ways that it would help him communicate that more clearly to those who are reading. And so whoever is being talked about in the remainder of this verse is the mystery of godliness. And so all we have to do is read this verse as we already have and look at the content of what Paul writes. And it becomes very obvious very quickly who it is that this verse is referring to, manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Paul is making it so crystal clear to us here that the mystery of godliness is Jesus Christ himself. None other than him. This isn't the only time in this letter that Paul writes to Timothy that he's so moved by the weight of what he's writing that he can't help but pull the car over and exclaim a magnificent doxology about Christ. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Paul says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. And here comes verse 17, to the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. In the middle of 16, he says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. We think about some of the songs that we even sung this morning already, and that's what we get to do when we gather together is exclaim these magnificent truths, these, these doxologies about Christ and His glory. And Paul, when he's writing these, things, writing these he can't, can't help but to, to break out into worship of Christ, dwelling on the centrality of Christ amidst these instructions to Timothy. And this verse that we're looking at, chapter 3, verse 16, is no different. Confessedly great, undeniably great is the mystery of godliness. 
Jesus Christ and the work he did is to be exalted even in the midst of talking about God's design for the church. And Paul, not wanting his readers to have anything but the highest view of Christ, of the highest view of their Savior, who is in and of himself the great mystery of godliness, draws our attention to him. And so with that being the case, we're going uh, to follow Paul's uh, attention here on Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at these six undeniably great truths about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Looking again at verse 16, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. I want you to notice something that is crucial, paramount for what we believe about Jesus Christ. He uses a word here, manifested. It doesn't say created in the flesh. It doesn't say began to exist in the flesh. It doesn't say came into being in the flesh. No, manifested, to be made known, to be revealed. I want you to think about it. When a baby is normally born, it's, it's amazing to think that, that this being, this beautiful infant, at some point in time did not exist. At some point, at the point of conception, God breathed life into a collection of cells, bringing life from nothing. And yet when Jesus was born, when Mary and Joseph, his father and mother, were first looking at him, they're not looking at something that was created for the first time. They were looking at an infant that had never been created. They were looking at someone who existed from eternity past and was now merely being revealed to mankind. You think about the sunset. As the sun is beginning to rise above the horizon, you're not seeing the sun being created for the first time before you. No, the sun is merely being revealed, being manifested to all who are laying eyes for the first time on it that day. Listen to what John Calvin writes. In the first place, we must see that we will never know Jesus Christ as our Savior unless we know that from all eternity past, He is God. Jesus Christ is not like you and I. Jesus Christ never had a starting point. John 1, 1 1-4 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him not anything was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in the last days, he, spoke, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he, appeared, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he created the world. Colossians 1, 16, all things were created through him and for him. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account, count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
See, what we see in the manifestation of Jesus Christ in the flesh is the second person of the Trinity setting aside His divine prerogative to redeem the people of God once and for all. See, if Jesus was merely another created being, then the mission of saving the world would have been a failure before it even began. We have to understand the the importance and the weight of what Paul is writing here. That it says that He was manifested and not created. Manifested in the flesh. The seed of the kingly line of David who would be the fulfillment of all God had promised His people. Emmanuel, God with us. Almighty God clothed Himself with physical weakness of man. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of His people. Israel. Paul writes, undeniably great is a mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. But Paul doesn't stop there. He was manifested in the flesh and vindicated by the Spirit. It is simply to be pronounced righteous, uh, to be justified, to be rendered a favorable verdict declared innocent on all counts. Jesus was looked at, and He was found to be flawless. Some of your Bibles might say vindicated by the Spirit with a capital S, and others might read vindicated in the Spirit, lowercase s. The preposition that's used here is actually very flexible, and in turn, it has implications of what Paul is meaning when he says Spirit. To be honest, if it's translated either way, it could be translated either way, and the message does not change, whether Paul's referring to Jesus being found in righteousness by the Holy Spirit or declaring Him justified before the Father. Either way, they're both true. Jesus has been vindicated. And both are true testimonies of Christ being accepted by God as the spotless, perfect lamb that he was. We see this picture of Jesus being found blameless throughout much of the New Testament. Uh, From the mouth of God himself declaring from heaven, you are my beloved son, with whom I am pleased. To Pilate who found no guilt in this man. To the centurion standing by the cross, praising God, saying certainly this man was innocent. So when Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21 writes this, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Think about what the writer of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. And this is the very, very important part, yet without sin. Jesus was constantly found to be blameless. The fact of the matter is, without vindication, we would have no hope. Think about what John writes in 1 John 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Through Jesus Christ, the righteous, God is both just 
and justifier. Through Jesus Christ the righteous, we are adopted into the family of God and we're gain- we have gained an eternal inheritance through Jesus Christ the righteous. There is therefore found no condemnation. Undeniably great is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. But as we know, Paul doesn't stop there. He was seen by angels. think honestly what we're seeing here is a poetic statement of such a simple reality of the person of Jesus. The angels understanding exactly who Jesus is at every moment of his earthly life were in constant adoration and unceasing service to their king the same way they were when he was in full glory in heaven. Think about this. He was seen by the angels at the Incarnation. He was seen by the angels after his temptations in the wilderness. He was seen by the angels while being hung on the cross. He was seen by the angels when he uh, awoke from the dead. He was seen by the angels as he ascended once again into heaven to his rightful place of authority. And even into eternity, he will be the focal point of the angels along with all the heavenly hosts. If someone were writing a book about the life of a president, president, it would have to include the Secret Service and their constant supervision. If someone were making a documentary about a prince, it would have to include the, the unceasing watch of the royal guard. When we think about the life of Jesus Christ, we can't forget that there was a multitude of angels beholding him at every single moment any, at any point in time, he could have summoned this multitude of angels to appear before any of his enemies. Listen to what the mockers at Jesus' crucifixion were saying about him. Matthew chapter 27, verse 42. You can actually turn there. Matthew chapter 7, verse 42. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. But do you remember what Jesus told Peter after he struck the servant of the high priest in Matthew 26? Verse 52, Matthew 26 says this, Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? What an amazing statement. Could you imagine being Peter listening to that? Being anyone around listening to that? At that moment, if I'm one of the guards, I'm like, "Add him out, guys. This is uh, we're going to let someone else get this guy on the cross." Twelve legions of angels. Jesus knew that at all times he was being beheld by his angels, and yet, despite being mocked and challenged to do otherwise when it came to protecting his own life, at the time of his death, he kept them at bay, forcing his angels to see him be spit on forcing his angels to see him being beaten. 
and ultimately to see him being put to death on the cross. Why? For, for you, for me. Undeniably great is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels. But Paul doesn't even stop there. For this Jesus, he didn't die for the story to end there. He did not rise three days later for the story to even end there. He did not ascend into heaven for the story to end there. But Paul reminds us now of the work that was and still to this day is being done by the true followers of Jesus Christ. He was proclaimed among the nations. The words of Jesus to his disciples after his resurrection found in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Think about what Paul is doing here. He just highlighted the role of the heavenly host in their worship and servitude to Christ, seen by angels. But now the focus is no longer on their mission in relation to Christ, but it's now on us and our mission in relation to Christ. Who did Jesus say is to do the proclaiming? Who is to now go and share the gospel, the good news of the salvation that he offers? It's not the angels, although they could. It's not the rocks, although they could. It's no longer Jesus himself walking the streets of the earth, although he could. It's us. It's his followers. It's his disciples. Romans 10, 14 through 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. In this letter to Timothy, the very next chapter over, in chapter 4, verse 16, Paul personally reminds Timothy of the importance of this in his own life. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. See, Timothy was to be devoted to teaching the truth. Devoted to protect the church from those who would teach any different doctrine. Chapter 1, verse 3. He was to guard the deposit that was entrusted in him, to him. Chapter 6, verse 20. I don't know if you remember what Paul wrote to Timothy in his second letter to him. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4. I charge you, strong language there. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions." and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. 
As for you, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Just like Timothy, we too are to be devoted to teaching and preaching the truth. We too are to be devoted to the truth of Jesus Christ. We too are to be devoted to the proclaiming of the good news of Jesus Christ. That's to Gainesville. That's to Florida. That's to the United States. That's to every nation, to every country, to all the continent of this world. Jesus must be, and we can be guaranteed that he will be proclaimed among the nations. And we must all be praying that we, individually and as churches, are faithful to do so. To be a part of God's plan that is bigger than any weekly attendance in a church, but is shown in the life devoted to being a tool in the hands of God, used to pluck the lost souls from eternal damnation, Souls of every tribe, souls of every tongue, souls of every nation. Undeniably great is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. And you guessed it, Paul didn't even stop there. Because of who Jesus is and what he came to do, this mission actually already has a guaranteed outcome. He was believed on in the world. Paul and the the apostles, they actually saw much of this come to pass as thousands were being saved through the work of their ministry. No doubt Timothy would have seen the fruit of his labor, of his own faithfulness, as he was faithful to teach the truth. As, as well as the spreading of the gospel and a rapid pace in those, at a rapid pace in those days where the quantity of those who believed and were growing at a record pace. This isn't a, 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 some hypothetical line or theoretical hope. This is the reality of what was happening back then and is even currently happening today and will continue to happen until every single sheep of the Lord Jesus Christ hears the voice of their shepherd. This is an encouraging and hopeful line for us. Those who are called by the Father will believe in His Son. And those who believe in His Son are called by the Father. Undeniably great is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nation, believed on in the world. And so how does Paul close out such a beautiful and rich and weighty succession of undeniably great truths about the person and work of Jesus Christ? Well, it's interesting. It began with his manifestation in the flesh and it so gloriously ends with him being taken up in glory. What happens when the Son of God Himself has completed His mission here on earth? What happens when the perfect man has defeated sin and death and has now set into motion His perfect plan of sharing His message to this world? Jesus Christ, the perfect one, is raised into heaven. And as Paul writes in his letter to the Colossians, He is now seated at the right hand of God in his rightful place of power. 
in his rightful place of authority, in his rightful place of majesty. Jesus' ascension was a sign of the Father's acceptance. The fact that Jesus was not only raised from the dead and then raised into heaven was a verification of everything that he ever taught. We can only imagine what it must have been like to be one of the disciples of Jesus watching him disappear into the clouds. Luke describes the scene in Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 9. Acts chapter 1, verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Can you imagine how awesome and glorious of a sight, of a scene that must have been? And yet we can't separate, thankfully, we cannot separate it from the message that the two angels left with the disciples. Still in Acts chapter 1, verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. You wonder if at that moment did the disciples have maybe flashbacks of what Jesus had told them in the upper room, what John recorded in chapter 14 in the first four verses. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would, not, I would, would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. And where I am, and where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. When we think about the the reality of Jesus being taken up in glory, we must allow our hearts to be encouraged with the very the very real future reality of even our own souls. His ascension was not a one-way trip. He will return for us. And where He is today, we will one day be. Colossians 3, 4 says this, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. The reality is that we will be taken up in glory exact same, on the exact same merits as that of Jesus, on his righteousness, on his perfection, on his vindication. The glory is our only ticket into the presence of God. So Paul writes, undeniably great is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Six undeniably great truths about the person and work of Jesus Christ that, quite frankly, we cannot think enough about, that we must never take for granted, that we, believers, that we as churches must must never move on from. We, as the people of God, as the church of God, have been given such a great responsibility to be the very structure on which this truth stands. What an undeserved privilege this is. 
And not only do we have to remember this truth, but we must never lose sight of the implications of upholding this truth of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Listen to what upholding this truth means. It means that we submit to what God has said in his word on every matter. It means that we are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It means that truth, that, that it, it means that uh, truth that we, this is a truth that we fight to love. I don't understand what I wrote there, so I'm going to go on from that. It, <laughs> it means that we constantly forgive the offenses of others toward us. That we're compassionate toward the pain of those around us. Upholding this truth means that we don't dismiss the burden of others, but bear it with them. That we not only learn about Jesus, but we strive to live like Jesus. What an undeserved privilege it is that in what we proclaim and in how we walk, in all we confess the great mystery of godliness. Jesus Christ was manifested in the flesh. Jesus Christ was vindicated by the Spirit. Jesus Christ was seen by the angels. Jesus Christ was proclaimed among the nations. Jesus Christ was believed on in the world. And Jesus Christ was taken up in glory. Praise God that that will always. Let's pray together. Christ, our Lord and Savior, we are in awe of who you are. We're in awe of the reality that you are God. We are in awe of the reality of your perfection and your righteousness. And we are in awe of the reality that you, after living a perfect life, being God, gave up your life to a brutal death on the cross, feeling the weight of the wrath of God, why? So that we would be able to have the gift, gift of eternal life. So that we would be, even be able to call you Savior and not judge. So that we would be able to be redeemed and adopted into the family of God. Lord, allow our lives to be always, constantly affected by that truth. The reality of the gospel, the reality of a Savior who is magnificent, who is, who is deserving of all of our glory and praise. And we ask that you would help us to show our love for you in how we even obey, in how we walk, in how we live, in how we interact with others, whether at work or school or home or among other believers. Lord, that Christ, that you would be put on display in every aspect of our lives. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.